You're listening to a podcast edition of Closer to Truth. For more information about this series, visit our website, closertotruth.com. Welcome to Closer to Truth. I'm speaking with biological anthropologist Terence Deacon about N squared, the noosphere at 100, the future of human collective consciousness. N squared is an international interdisciplinary conference fostering creative collaboration for intentionally and ethically steering the future evolution of global consciousness. Closer to Truth is pleased to partner with Human Energy in presenting this Closer to Truth mini-series celebrating the 100th anniversary of the Noosphere. Terry, it's great to see you again. Great to see you as well. Thank you. Let's uh, just give a quick overview of what is the Noosphere, uh, kind of a coined word uh, in the last 100 years, and why is it important today? The Noosphere, the concept of the Noosphere, refers to the collection of all human thought and ideas uh, and communications that encompasses the earth today, mostly because of human interactions. Uh, it was coined roughly 100 years ago by the Jesuit priest and paleontologist Pierre Teilhard de Chardin um, in order to talk about this sort of development in evolution. We're sponsoring a conference on the Noosphere uh, to talk about its current relevance now 100 years after its coinings uh, because of the remarkable changes that have happened, particularly in human communication that sort of en envelop the entire Earth today. Great. Well, we're going to be talking about both uh, the Noosphere and how it developed and what it means and the conference, which I'm excited to participate in as is closer to truth. Uh, but first, let me give a, a brief uh, bio uh, so everybody knows who you are, those who those who don't, uh, everybody should. Uh, Terrence Deacon is professor and former chair of the Department of Anthropology at the University of California at Berkeley. His research combines developmental evolutionary biology and comparative neuroanatomy to investigate the evolution of human cognition. He focuses on brain development and evolution origins of language, semiotics, biocultural evolution, and emergent processes in biology and cognition. He has two path-breaking books, uh, which we uh, have discussed on Closer to Truth and we'll do more. The Symbiotic Species, The Coevolution of, of Language in the Brain, and Incomplete Nature, How Mind Emerged from, uh, uh, from Matter. Uh, we'll talk about both in relationship to, to the noosphere. So, uh, Terry, let's begin with some uh, uh, kind of in-depth understanding. First of all, the, the word itself, noos, uh, is from the Greek meaning mind and sphere. So it, it's an analogy like between atmosphere, biosphere, geosphere. This is the, the mind sphere, something like that, right? That's right. That's, so basically, it refers to the, the way that human thought, to some extent, it encloses the entire earth these days. Okay, so uh, let, let's go a little bit into the history. Uh, you mentioned uh, de Chardin and he, his involvement, and and he was a Jesuit a priest and a paleontologist, a philosopher of, of a kind, um, and and also uh, a, another individual who was a, a, a biogeochemist, right? Right. Bernatsky, yes. Uh, the two of yeah. them actually had a meeting in the early 20s, roughly about uh, 1923, in which uh, they were 
discussing this relationship between the geosphere and the biosphere, and then how humans fit into this. Uh, and Teilhard suggested that to some extent it was similar for humans, but it was instead of the physical enclosing, enclosing of, the, of the globe, uh, it was actually a sort of a mental uh, sphere that encloses the globe that human thought was now basically surrounding the earth and it was playing a major role in the earth's history. And of hmm. course, recently it's become much more significant. Yeah, certainly the internet is the exemplification, maybe even the personification of it. Yeah, and, and not just the internet, but of course, um, the fact that we're able to use our telephones to talk to each other uh, within minutes of each other, even though we're on opposite sides of the globe, uh, that we can uh, get information about major events happening in the world as though it was sort of directly happening with us here. So in that respect, uh, it's made us much more directly connected, both with each other and with what's changing in the world. So just briefly, let's understand the commonalities between the Vernadsky uh, model, which uh, had, I think, those three parts from the, the geosphere to the biosphere to the noosphere is like three nice segments of, of the history of the Earth. And, and de Chardin's view, which is seems to be more consciousness related or complexity, it, it, it has a deeper understanding of... Uh, uh, sort of the 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 human the, the, the human consciousness part of it uh, so there was there were similarities and differences right i would say that the major impact had to do with the fact that Teilhard had spent considerable time in china uh involved in paleontological digs in fact he was involved in the discovery of uh what today we would call uh homo erectus in china uh then called peking man or uh chukutian uh as a result, he was very much involved in trying to fit human evolutionary uh, biology into this larger picture of the evolution of the Earth. But, but Teilhard recognized something really interesting, and that is that to some extent, the evolutionary process had this kind of fanning out logic to it, in which species differentiated, fit different niches, you know, and developed different adaptations like claws and teeth and fur and so on. Um, but he said that with respect to mental processes, those that humans are engaged in, there's a kind of convergence in which knowledge being shared around the world uh, actually produces evolution running in almost an opposite direction, much more convergent, much more um, like bringing all human beings together. We sort of recognize this as a sort of common biological and neurological and conscious nature of, of humans. So it's no longer human nature in just a biological sense, but for Teilhard, it was human nature in a mental sense that was most important. And he felt that there was, in a sense, a kind of progressive trend developing in human history. And that was a trend that was actually moving in the opposite direction to this sort of fanning out logic of evolution. And he felt that it was, in a sense, um, converging towards what he calls an omega point uh, far, far in the future, uh, in which uh, there would be much more consolidation of human thought. We don't see a lot of that today in uh, social areas. Uh, we see a yeah. lot of it in scientific areas, of course. So in, 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 in terms of the, the, the deep fundamental principles, uh, we have evolution and then we have this, this convergence or, or something. And, and oftentimes we'll use the word uh, teleology, which 
has for a long time had a bad reputation that's it's seeming to read purpose into evolution when there isn't one would be one interpretation. But in recent times, even in biology, teleology is coming back as a in a different form. It's not not necessarily a godlike imposition of a of a purpose, but really a sort of a, a built-in uh, trophism, if you will, towards a, a goal. Now, are you differentiating between this teleology in biological evolution and then this this uh, psychosocial evolution or psychocultural evolution? Uh, one of the tenets of the group I'm working with is that, that in fact, um, we're moving into a third age, you might say, a third paradigm in the way we think about prog the progress of our own species and the development of processes of biology in general. Uh, and the first one, of course, um, is a pre-scientific perspective. Uh, we sometimes describe this as the sort of first story of our nature. Uh, and it's largely driven by um, both mythological, but also very many different theological perspectives on what makes human beings special, why they came into the world, and so on. Uh, that was a, a vision that was definitely driven by a teleological perspective, a perspective in which we were designed to do things in certain ways. And we were designed to have a certain history and a certain purpose for being in the world. Uh, so in that respect, we were sort of like artifacts of a larger great mind. Uh, with the dawn of the scientific age, of course, uh, that idea was replaced more and more successfully by more mechanistic kind of ideas, that the causes of things were not sort of driven uh, by some sort of outside mental agency that had a purpose for our being, but that in fact, in the extreme, you might, there might not be any such thing as purpose if the things were just caused uh, in a sort of mechanical way. What's happened both beginning in the 20th century with ideas like Teilhard's ideas, but also in the development of biology in the last few decades, is we're beginning to realize that although natural selection, Darwin's idea of how organisms become adapted to their environment, how the transformation from one lineage to another sometimes has something that looks a little progressive. And every school child, when they first learn about biological evolution, see it as a process from uh, microorganisms to macroorganisms, from organisms without minds to organisms like ourselves with minds. Uh, clearly a directionality. Um, so it would sort of look like the, the spontaneous perspective that most people take away from the initial experience of the evolutionary history of, of life on Earth is that it has a kind of direction. In recent times, we've begun to rethink that directionality in terms of what's sometimes called major transitions. And the major transitions are very distinctive. They're basically uh, the kind of Russian doll's logic in which parts come together to make larger holes and do so again and again and again. An obvious example, of course, is that you and I are made up of cells. Uh, but previously in the course of evolution for most of of uh, the three and a half billion years of evolutionary history, life on Earth was single-celled. And collections of cells coming together as a society that makes up a larger individual um, is a fairly recent phenomenon in evolution. Uh, well, it, it turns out that there have been a few of these major sort of, you might call them hierarchic transitions. 
And this is characteristic of the big picture of evolution uh, from the dawn of life till the present. Well, it turns out that the noosphere idea is very closely related to this. And that is recognizing that we human beings um, are becoming more and more integrated with each other. Despite uh, all of our differences and conflicts and so on, uh, we're much more integrated in sharing information, even if that information is somehow um, at odds with each other and causes all kinds of frictions. Nevertheless, there's much more sharing and you might say interdigitation of thought going on in the world. And in that respect, uh, the idea of the noosphere, the idea that there might be a sort of common global mental process of some sort um, is like one of those major transitions in which all of these separate minds are becoming more and more integrated. Not, they don't necessarily all have to fit with each other, but they share overlapping processes a lot. And the classic example of this, of course, of this is, is language. We couldn't acquire language if we were isolated from other individuals. So our minds are, in a sense, interdigitated if we share a common language, because we can now get into each other's pasts, futures, desires, uh, feelings, and so on, in ways that other species can't. Uh, this becomes sort of the basis of a new major transition. And the question that we're really dealing with is whether we're in the process of that kind of major transition right now. Terry, the question is, uh, with the noosphere, given what you've said, is it a, a nice metaphor that kind of gives us a way of understanding it? Or are we reifying it as a, as a real thing that has somehow emerged and has substance of itself? A very fundamental question. Well, so originally, of course, it was just a hypothesis um, and a way of talking about a potential state. Um, I actually think it's more real than that. And in a sense, I think that we have always, to some extent, we human beings have been part of a noosphere. Uh, and what we're seeing actually is something that began perhaps as much as a couple of million years ago as humans began to communicate symbolically. As that phrase goes, no man is an island, no mind is an island. Uh, that is, our, our ideas, the very things that we're talking about today are the result of the fact that we've inherited a great deal of mental information from others. Uh, and that language itself requires that we are, in a sense, sharing with each other lots of information that allows it allows us to talk to each other and understand each other. In that respect, um, we've always, we human beings, have long been the result of being a sort of collective mind as well as an individual mind, or a more, you might say, extended mental process. Uh, as a result, uh, we, we can talk about Teilhard de Chardin and his ideas, uh, which are now 100 years old. Yeah, but you, you have focused on language, semiotics, the symbolic species uh, as, as, as really a, a critical factor, not something that has come along maybe with human consciousness, but is a, a kind of a co-evolution or a co-development with it at a, a very high level of significance. So uh, I, I just want to emphasize that as you describe the noosphere, language is not, not more than just an aspect of it, it is a, a central feature. Exactly, exactly. And part of that is, is because language, unlike other forms of communication, these sort of iconic and indexical, 
communication, the communication by likeness and by correlation that is so common in the animal world and is also common for us, like laughter and sobbing, which points to, you know, by virtue of its physiological connection with our particular states of mind, uh, immediately communicates that to those who share our background, evolutionary background. But in fact, because of the sort of displacement of the sounds of language from what they refer to, um, we're now capable of sort of reconceiving that information so that you and I, when we talk, can talk about our backgrounds. I can tell you what I'm thinking, what my dreams were last night, what I plan to do, what my own personal history is. And yet any two other species, any two members of another species, like two chimpanzees meeting um, in the forest, uh, they can, in a sense, get some idea of what their immediate other state is, maybe what they're expecting to do next uh, by observing their behaviors and by a few of their communications. But they can't really get in each other's thoughts. They can't really share each other's thoughts in the way we can with language. So it's with language that human beings literally become part of an extended mental process. Now, it's a process that is limited within small social groups early on. But as we've developed languages that expand, uh, expand larger into uh, whole populations, we're now sharing much more information with each other. And of course, as media of communication, media of taking linguistic communication and modifying it, like the production of writing, eventually printing, and then the, of course, the electronic use of it. In a sense, it becomes, it widens our scope, not only in terms of the numbers of people we can reach and get influenced by, but also by virtue of the extent through time. So I can actually be influenced by Aristotle and Plato and I can begin to think about the consequences of this very process we're talking about um, in the far future, possibly a future decades away or maybe millennia away. Um, this is something that language gives us access to and why we don't have just a sort of limited access to thought, but our thoughts are really quite extended into the world. And this is, I think, the basis of the noosphere. It's just that this extended mind is expanding and expanding and expanding very rapidly under the influence of all these new media that we have. So if this noosphere is becoming a real thing, as, as you've said, as opposed to uh, a, a metaphor, enhanced metaphor, um, and teleological thinking is part of the, its development, does that mean that evolution, biological evolution, which was obviously the precursor, you couldn't have had a noosphere without a biosphere, in, in, at least in terms of the physical world. Uh, so what was that an inherent capacity within the biosphere? Was it, a, was it a, an inevitable development? Um, when we use teleology, that seems to be the implication um, but, you know, that would have, you know, fairly large consequences if that were the case. So how I would answer that is to point out that um, indirected behavior, behavior to produce specific ends, uh, is characteristic of all life. Uh, even though we began to think that the course of evolution uh, was not teleological, did not have a kind of indirected nature to it uh, after Darwin. And Darwin showed that, that to some extent, a non-teleological process could explain how organisms become adapted to their world. 
and how they develop new capacities and so on in the course of evolution. Darwin actually assumed teleology in a different sense. And this is the sense that's beginning to come back to relevance. And that is, he recognized that all living things um, act to preserve themselves against thermodynamic decay, the second law of thermodynamics, and also to produce copies of themselves, both not only produce new parts of their bodies to repair themselves, but also to produce new offspring, copies of themselves as well. That is, this is, although it's not an end that they intended to produce in the sense of a mental intention, it is clearly an end-directed dynamics or a disposition that's characteristic of all life. If it wasn't for that disposition, natural selection couldn't happen because there wouldn't be the production of new variants, new types, new organisms, many offspring for the, in competition for natural selection to sort of winnow down to those that are best fitted to their environment. So in that respect, that kind of teleology has always been there. It's just been in the background. Um, and as we begin to understand um, the kind of teleology that is now elaborated mentally uh, in animals with brains and eventually in humans with this linguistic form of communication. Uh, we now have a, a way that this, this very subtle tendency, which is the characteristic tendency of all life, has now become a global tendency, a tendency that is actually um, being restructured uh, by virtue of human communication and human social organization, and of course, human technology, which is itself a teleological process as we actively produce new, new technology, which modifies the earth, modifies ourselves, and is modifying this communication itself. So in that respect, um, it's a recognition that this, this kind of teleology, though it was always there in the background, it's now becoming part of the foreground. And the distinction that is is there between the noosphere and different um, uh, eras or um, equilibria, punctuated or otherwise, in the biological development is that a, a quantitative difference or a difference in kind? Is it a step function transition that was sort of built in from the beginning? That once you hit that, or is it just a nat natural consequence of? Uh, of mental activity and communication and language that causes it. But I, I think the implication is, is that no, the noosphere is different in kind than the biological um, uh, development of, of specific body parts. I think it's exactly the case. That is partly because of this kind of communication um, is to some extent substrate and different. That is, I can communicate the same thing in writing as I can with with speech or with pictures even. Uh, and of course, across the internet in all kinds of electronic means as well. Uh, that means the evolution of the noosphere, that aspect of the noosphere, although it's dependent on biology, it's dependent upon uh, the geosphere. Uh, it's dependent upon, in a sense, being grounded in the real world in that respect. Um, the structures that develop actually are to some extent displaced from from those sources. Uh, we can do all kinds of things that counter the biology, that work in ways that counter the thermodynamics of the world, uh, sometimes causing problems, but sometimes overcoming problems. Uh, and that is because to some extent, um, 
we've learned by virtue of technology to displace this out of our own bodies, so to speak, so that it's now being done in the world, independent of us. Uh, and this is, of course, no, no place more extremely represented than in the development of artificial intelligence and how we're beginning to find ways to, in a sense, simulate what brains have done to produce a lot of different effects that can now be externalized away from people's bodies. Um, we have, we're still part of that process. We're linked in it, but this is becoming a larger and larger part of, uh, you might say, the collective cognition of humans. Yeah, one, one, one can argue, as some do, that uh, when artificial intelligence develops to the so-called singularity or however it develops in the future, that that itself will be a, a new kind of uh, sphere uh, where, as from the geosphere, the biosphere, the noosphere, that with artificial intelligence will be to the noosphere what the noosphere was to, to the uh, biosphere. So it will, it will uh, overtake the noosphere into something new. Uh, that's the danger that some suspect. So, so I think there's a, a missing feature in that argument that is so common, particularly in people uh, in the information world. And that is that cognition is necessarily grounded. Meaning is necessarily part of the world. Uh, and so in human thought, it's because thinking is about being. Uh, it's about maintaining being. Now, it may be um, quite indirectly related to that, but our brains developed in order to keep our bodies going, so to speak. Um, now, the key is that these tools that we're developing um, by themselves are not grounded in the world. By themselves, they are not there to exist. We sort of project our own persona, our own tendencies, our own groundedness into these devices in a way that's probably not there. Um, they're more like uh, the shovels or the, the typewriters uh, that we've used to augment our capacities and augment our capacities, but without us, they're not fundamentally grounded in the world. And so I think that there's a part of that argument that leads us to this idea that we're producing minds, an other kind of mind. I think that that's probably misleading. That doesn't mean that it's not possible, but it's probably the case that what we're doing is we're developing, you might say, additional tools uh, that support us in the way that prostheses support us. These are all prostheses. Now, the question is, will our prostheses uh, become persons of themselves? Will they have their own interests in mind? I, I doubt that that's possible, at least the way we're doing it now. And certainly not artificial intelligence as we understand it now, which I think should be renamed simulated intelligence in the way we, we think about simulating the movements of planets. There's no gravity there. There's no mass there. And I think there's no thought there in the artificial intelligence world at all. But it's a good simulation of what we do. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty much on your side on this, uh, but then I wonder, are you and I in the old paradigm and uh, you, you and I in our generation has to die off before the new paradigm is appreciated, but uh, <laughs> we'll see. I want to ask you why the conference is named N squared, which is Noosphere squared, and what the squared means and why the, um, the exponential um, implication is, uh, is part of the vision. So... You're exactly right to point to the exponential nature of this. The argument that I would make 
is that, as I suggested before, this sort of extended mental world that we're a part of, as we're no longer just isolated individuals. We have this incredible extended mental process. But in fact, that's been slowly expanding, that the reach back into history, the reach into the future, uh, the reach across the world that's causing this increasing integration has suddenly, just in the last few decades, exploded and become exponential. And we're all, of course, experiencing this exponential change. And it's very disorienting and dis disturbing. And I think a lot of the problems that we're seeing in the world today are the result of this expansion. I actually think that it begins um, around Teilhard's lifetime, in which he lived through two world wars. He recognized that these radical changes in technology, including radio and television, um, were radically changing the way social organization works, the way human beings communicate to each other, and how they develop a kind of collective intentionality. If you think about the kinds of actions that we see whole nation states engaged in, um, historically, uh, as well as today, um, these are intentional actions that are produced by whole collectives of people, millions of individuals working together. Wonderful things have happened and terrible things have happened because of this capacity. But what we're seeing now is that it's exploding at an incredible rate. And I want to point out that it's not just our communication that's doing this. If you look at so many different indicators of changes in our technology, changes in our um, healthcare systems, changes in what you might call personal wealth, changes in what's happening to the environment, changes in what's happening uh, to the oceans, to the biosphere and so on. It's all exponential. We're reaching an exponential point in many, many respects. And I think it's the result of this consequence. And exponential growth, of course, in a finite world is not sustainable for any long period of time. So that at some point, as we're moving towards this exponential increase, uh, we're going to be either blocked by the limitations of the world uh, and crash, or we're going to have to, in a sense, reorganize ourselves in a larger collective. Uh, and, and I think one of the reasons that, it, that people are so disturbed and, and, you might say, upset by events happening, particularly the young, young folks, is that one of the things that's critical here is that everybody sees this potential disaster down the end of the line. The, the, you might say the, the waterfall at the end of the, of the river that we've been floating down. It looks as though it's coming very, very fast. And as a result, I think that this is both something we perceive and it's now part of the noosphere, part of our own recognition of where we are in the world, but also one of those things that's, that's likely to force a change in the very near future. It used to be that the media reported the news and in today's world, and I think as characteristic of the noosphere, the media is creating the news in many cases, and certainly social media has been a, uh, a powerful magnet that draws people of similar views together in their own ways of perception. And so rather than having one big noosphere, uh, we have fragmented, uh, in, in the, certainly in the social and political worlds, uh, which is uh, very concerning. I mean, I can see it in myself as, as following uh, the current wars in the world, uh, that you focus on those news sites or 
pieces of information that reinforce your own emotions uh, as opposed to trying to hear the other. And I think that's a characteristic that is, uh, is part of the danger, part of this very serious danger we're facing today, uh, which, is, which we need to deal with if there is this noosphere. So I think you're right. Uh, Teilhard understood this, uh, given that he lived through two world wars. He understood that, that one of the consequences of this is that there's going to be huge upheavals, uh, and in part driven by, you might say, the expansion of the noosphere uh, for precisely these reasons. But the noosphere doesn't mean that we agree. The noosphere doesn't mean that we all come together. Um, even us individually, we have aspects of our character that are oftentimes in conflict with each other. Um, it would be nice if, the, if everything was coherent, but it's not. The idea of the noosphere is simply that it's all interconnected. Uh, and that interconnectivity, the, you might say the in integration of all of these influences is becoming more and more intense and more and more complete. Uh, as a result, uh, he was aware and actually predicted that there would be further cataclysms of the sort that he experienced that he assumed would happen in the future. But that that was not because the noosphere was failing, but it was actually evidence of this increasing mm -hmm. interconnectivity. Uh, mm -hmm. So it wasn't, a, it wasn't necessarily a positive vision all the time, even though his end point, uh, from, from his point of view, what he called an omega point, omega being the last letter in the Greek alphabet, um, was for him a, a sort of a convergence towards a godlike character. Uh, that that was what he felt um, from a theological point of view uh, was where things were headed. I, I'm not a theologian and, and have a more scientific evolutionary view of this, uh, but I do recognize that in evolution as well, as things develop, uh, new kinds of conflicts, new kinds of uh, cataclysms occur regularly in these transitions. So it shouldn't surprise us that we maybe have to, have to go through many more such cataclysms as this process develops. As a very, very small, uh, perhaps positive aspect of, of the noosphere and increased communications, if, I, if you permit me uh, uh, 30 seconds of a, of, of a personal statement, um, we've found on Closer to Truth, we deal with very specific kinds of subjects in cosmology and physics and brain-mind consciousness in terms of uh, mechanisms, free will, personal identity, and also meaning, philosophy of religion, uh, critical thinking, diverse views, uh, that we have found that people all over the world, and literally every country on earth, every religion, we have uh, uh, people from I Islam and Hinduism and Buddhism, all appreciating these kinds of questions. Uh, it's, it, it's a very small subset, but it's a growing subset, and it is not wasn't something that those of us on Closer to Truth, uh, uh, Peter Getzels, who's co-creator and uh, producer director, myself and our whole team, something that we planned from the beginning by no means, but we've witnessed that, and especially in the last few years, that there's this commonality of of, of, of interest and hunger. Uh, from different religions and races and socioeconomic roots all over the world about these kinds of questions. So even though I'm much of the time pessimistic, that gives me a little bit of optimism uh, that all human beings do have these kinds of, of yearnings uh, uh, in common. No, I, and I agree entirely that, 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 in effect, in the sciences of, of all places, we see that um, as we begin 
begin to study the various areas that we're interested in. Um, it doesn't matter what part of the world you come from, uh, what religious background you carry with you, uh, what ideology you care, carry, that basically uh, you're interested in resolving these questions, solving these problems. Uh, and as a result, uh, you could say that scientists speak the same language, even though they don't have the same language uh, of English. Yeah, or And we found that that's absolutely true in the sciences, but we found that also when we get into quasi-religious kinds of questions, not sectarian questions, but but generalized questions about non-physical reality or or you know meaning writ broad, that, that there are people in all these different segments that no demographic analysis could could reveal them, but they self-select uh, because of their common interest. And it's just remarkable how similar the kinds of ideas and, and, and hopes and and thoughts are from people from radically different religious backgrounds. Well, and, and that to some extent is, is, is Tehard's own positive view, is that in effect, over time, more and more of that will begin to replace uh, the tensions and transitions and cataclysms that we engage in because of these changes, uh, simply because there is in effect um, a transhuman, uh, meaning across all of human, uh, need to maintain ourselves, to understand the world, to fit in with the world and with each other. Uh, that's got to be a, the common driving feature. Uh, and I think he had a faith as a theologian, but also simply looking at the course of, of human history and biological evolution, that that was what's going on. Evolution is about the fitting of organisms to their world. And of course, that's what we're all about, a better fit. Uh, Terry, one subject we've not covered, which I do want to briefly, is uh, emergence and the importance of the concept of emergence, which is very important uh, in the sciences and the psychological sciences, strong emergence, weak emergence. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a very broad topic that has great um, application. But j just, just briefly, what, what is the relationship between the noosphere and emergence? So I, th I like to think about in, in trivial biological sense, um, uh, we, I mentioned the transition from single-celled organisms to multi-celled organisms. But what happens is what was a social relationship between cells, uh, in a sense, became a single unity. That is what, what emerged was a higher order identity. No longer is it into individual cellular identity, but now all the cells lose a little bit of their autonomy to become codependent on each other, to become parts of a larger whole. And that larger whole in that sense, emerged out of those relationships. It emerged that it wasn't there before. It wasn't there uh, in the social organization. It was only there because of this transition. Uh, in that respect, the merging together of thoughts, ideas, and communications, and hopes and dreams that we're all engaged in by our communications um, is a similar sort of emergence. That is, there is a, a larger self. Now, I don't, I don't think of the noosphere as a simple self in the way that you and I have a sense of self. Uh, but I do think of it as something more than just social relationships. Hmm. Okay, um, let's just give me some of the, um, the, under, the, the themes that the um, uh, N-Square conference will be developing. The noosphere is the big idea, the exponential growth of it, but what are some of the uh, sub-themes that you have that will um, express the noosphere? 
Well, clearly one of the driving themes is, of course, um, uh, how this idea fits into evolution, how we can use the knowledge of evolutionary change and what we're learning about evolutionary change um, in the last few few decades that have changed our thinking about it um, and understanding how that fits with the development of, of humanness into the future. But of course, that has a psychological side of it. Uh, that is, um, there are processes that are bringing us together. Our psychologies are changing, partly because of social media, but, but simply because of exposure to this sort of wider scope of human knowledge and human experience. Uh, there are obvious theological aspects to this. Teilhard himself was, of course, a Jesuit priest and brings his theological perspective, which was a perspective that is actually cosmic in some respects. So we actually have people also talking about, you might say, how does this fit in with the larger cosmic evolution, not evolution in the sense of biological evolution, but the way the cosmos has changed over the last 13 odd billion years and how things have developed new kinds of uh, life forms, new kinds of stars, new kinds of planets, new kinds of galaxies have come into the world. There is a sense in which Teilhard viewed his, his perspective as being cosmic because he's a theologian, but also because he was aware of this sort of larger explosion of our knowledge of the, of the universe. So that's become a major part of it. Finally, there's also the educational part of it and the, the aspect of just simply um, giving people a vision of what can be done. Uh, we're now facing all of these troublesome periods. We actually call it a sort of techno-social dilemma that we're facing. That is, our technology has advanced our societies, but it's also posed huge problems that we face in the very near future. And so this techno-social dilemma uh, is a problem particularly troublesome if you don't have a vision of what to do, of where to go, of what might be the teleology of humanists that we should be applying uh, to help the next generations flourish rather than have to suffer with the consequences of these dilemmas. And so there's... As you look, yeah. As so, you look, what, go, go ahead. ahead. Sorry. As you look to the future uh, and you see this developmental change, this teleology, this, this cosmic evolution in the, in the grander sense, um, I, I'm having a little difficulty to see how you differentiate the science part which obviously you can do a lot of forward projections on, including well, biological and, and universal changes and the theological or spiritual, because when you use those terms, you, you bring the, the concept at, at the very minimum of a non-physical reality. Um, and it sounds like you kind of blend those together, but those are radically different ways of perceiving reality. They are radically different, but what we're finding is that they're beginning to converge in one way and one way only. And that is that the physical world and the mental world, the world that Descartes divided into uh, res cogitans, the thought world, and res extensa, the material world, um, is in fact uh, a misunderstanding of the world. That is, there is not disembodied thought. Um, that is always embodied, but that means it's always has a physical counterpart. It's always part of these physical changes. Uh, and in that respect, um, a lot of theologians have begun to sort of realize that theological perspective doesn't require that you think about a sort of disembodied world 
a wor world that's somehow separate, not even dimensional in the sense that we think about it now in physical terms, uh, that, that there doesn't have to be that radical separation. Now, what the problem here is that what this tells us is that um, although the scientific viewpoint, which tried to look at the world in purely mechanical terms, um, has always, at least in the last few hundred years, felt it was at odds with this spiritual view. We're now beginning to find that that spiritual view, the view of the teleology of the world, of the fact that things are directed in some directions, though not by some kind of design, design or purpose, um, that these views actually can inform each other. It's not that they will ever be completely compatible. It means that the scientists will have to give up their allergy to teleology to some extent. And the spiritual world will have to give up to some extent their wed being wedded to disembodiment. Once you see that overlap, there's, I think, lots that can be exchanged, lots, lots, lots from each side that can help transform and educate the other side. That transition is, is obviously one vision, and there are many people who subscribe to that, which uh, uh, science would have to see some sort of a teleology, some sort of a, a, of a universal trophism, uh, some kind of, uh, of uh, quantum so-called backward causation or, or something that is built into the system that is part of the scientific world. And the, uh, the, the spiritual or, or those on that side would have to see this, no, as you said, disembodied nature to mental activity. It could all be some sort of a, a, a monism, a Russellian monism or different kinds of, of uh, monisms built into a single uh, universal stuff that could be represented mentally and, and physically, which is different than the current physical. But what that leaves out is, is, is one of the words you use, which is theological. Theological has a very definite uh, uh, antecedent, which is God or something like God, and that doesn't seem to fit in the picture that you've drawn. I'm not saying it's right or wrong, I'm just trying to be clear. The idea of a designer for the universe, a creator of the universe, um, that is somehow outside of the universe, is an idea that is not shared, of course, by all religious theological perspectives. Um, many, particularly in the Far East, um, basically see this as something intrinsic to the physical world. In the West, and particularly after the, the, the Abrahamic traditions, there was this idea that you, you had to separate this. And I think this is captured by Plato's idea uh, of, you know, in being in a cave, that, that the, the world that we see is just a, a reflection of a more perfect world somewhere else that to some extent the physical world is a degraded version of this sort of uh, perfect forms that are out there in some respects. This is an idea that's characteristic a lot of the Western world, but not of the Far East. And, and what I am suggesting is that this separation of, you might say, the creator, the father that makes things from the world itself is, in fact, I think somewhat troublesome and dangerous in the following sense. I think it's dangerous because it degrades the physical world that we're a part of. It makes it more likely that we're going to treat the world and each, each other as, as artifacts, 
made by something in which the real value is outside of us, is outside of the world, is somewhere else. And as a result, the world is degraded by that. Uh, my own view, and this is again, very personal, is that in fact, I think we'll only begin to approach this kind of omega point in which we're more fitted to the real world. Uh, when we begin to break down that sort of dichotomy in which we begin to break down this idea that we're sort of like birds that have flown in and landed uh, temporarily on this branch called the physical world and will eventually leave it and go into this, this other world. In that respect, the branch and ourselves are, are in effect very, very separate. I'd rather think of us sort of like the fruit of the tree uh, that is on the tree for a while that falls down and becomes another tree. Um, it's a part, it's all a part of the system. And in that respect, um, I don't see a controversy that needs to be um, brought up as, a, uh, as an impediment to bringing the theological spiritual world together with the scientific world. In fact, interestingly enough, I've had probably half a dozen PhD students in theology that I've taught. Uh, because they're interested precisely in these questions of emergence and teleology and how the sciences and the theological world are going to have to come together. Because, in fact, if theology is based upon a, a metaphysics that's thousands of years old and doesn't change um, with the develop of, de development of knowledge, uh, then, in effect, we're going to become less and less fitted to the world. And I think it's going to cause more and more difficulty rather than resolve some of these difficulties. Terry, many thanks. Uh, I look forward for uh, us continuing the conversation uh, over time. Uh, I'd have a lot to say, but uh, we'll, we'll save it for another time. Um, very much looking forward to the conference because over the next several months, Closer to Truth will be featuring uh, several leading speakers from the N Squared Conference, the Noosphere at 100, the future of human collective consciousness. We look forward to all the different uh, contributions, which we'll eventually put into a big uh, organized uh, framework, which will be on the Closer to Truth website and the Closer to Truth YouTube channel. But even now, viewers can watch over a thousand videos on consciousness on the Closer to Truth website and YouTube channel. We cover brain mechanisms, free will, personal identity, panpsychism, dualism, idealism, even parapsychology, uh, life after death, cosmic consciousness, all infused, of course, with critical thinking. Thanks, everyone, for watching. Terry, thanks once again. Thank you. To watch complete conversations with over 100 of the world's leading thinkers on cosmos, consciousness, and meaning, visit our website, closertotruth.com.